So this week, um, we're going to be doing something a little different. Uh, we experienced some technical difficulties on Sunday morning, and uh, so for our podcast of our sermon, we are going to be re-recording uh, Sunday morning sermon, and we're going to do it podcast style. So this is Pastor Ed, and I am here with Pastor Matt. Hey. Say, say hi, Pastor Matt. Hi. Hi. Um, <clears throat> So uh, why don't we go ahead and have Matt do what he does every Sunday morning, and we're going to try to take you there and make it feel as though you are sitting in church on a Sunday morning and we haven't skipped a beat. So Matt, why don't you just try to, you know. I'll do this. All right. Get into your persona. (laughs) You're going to want to explain what they need to be doing. So normally I have a whole week to prepare for this, but this is a little rushed. Uh, So James chapter one. If you could see right now, you would see that Matt is for the first time holding his microphone up (laughs) to his mouth. That's right. Instead of four feet away from it, like he does on Sunday morning. trained me well. Okay. James chapter one, verses nine through 18. Uh, James continue on in that first chapter says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So Pretty much everything that happens in life, and I mean everything that happens, uh, we can deal with it one of two ways. The first is we can choose to see things that happen as they really are. In other words, we can choose to face reality. And the second way that we can uh, handle a situation is we can basically refuse to face reality. We can say things the way that we wish they were. Now, I think we all want to believe that we see things as they really are. But in truth, uh, oftentimes we don't. And that's because reality can be a very hard thing to face. Uh, It's interesting that we can do very simple things that involve facing reality. You can count the number of eggs in a box. You can measure the size of a board. You can read a history book uh, without worrying too much about... Uh, the reality of what you're reading. It it won't be hard to face those facts. Um, And I think the difference is, uh, I suppose, how threatening or attractive the reality of something is. If, uh, If a certain reality is threatening to you, intimidating to you, uh, scary to you, then you'll have a hard time facing it. Um, If it's attractive, if it's something that you like, then you'll have an easy time facing it. I can't think of a better example of this than something that's coming up right now in a lot of people's lives, uh, which is taxes. Uh, When I mentioned this on Sunday, there was a 
clear response on the faces of, of each person. Uh, some people very sad when you mention the word taxes. Other people couldn't care less. Uh, uh, and I can't think of a, of a better way of looking at a reality that some of us are more than happy to face and others are hesitant to face. Why is that, right? Well, because for some, taxes means sitting down and having to face the fact that we did not make as much as we wanted to this year. Or maybe we did make enough that we have to pay money more than we've already paid. Maybe it's a reminder to some of us that we never have enough at the end of a year. Uh, and for others, taxes is great. Taxes means you're gonna get a big return back. And so uh, you, uh, you sit down, no problem. I'll file my taxes because this is how I get a big check every year from the government. And so uh, it's not a hard thing to face at all. It's like this, uh, I don't know how many, I don't know a lot of couples that really enjoy sitting down and uh, looking at a budget together, right? And why is that? Because, I mean, nobody wants to really face the reality of their financial situation. Um, you see, for a lot of us, fear or anxiety magnify reality. They turn it into something terrifying, right? You turn the lights out and everything changes. You see monsters in the closets. You see things under the bed. Uh, and it's not because they're really there. It's because your anxiety is making reality into something that you are afraid of. I remember for years when uh, Ellie and I were still married, I'm pretty sure she would jump off of the bed and land like two feet away from it because uh, that sort of general area around the bed, she still had this belief that, you know, you, you just don't want to get your foot too close. I mean, if someone's hiding under the bed and they grab you, that's not a good idea. So, uh, you know, that's not a real thing, at least I think for most people, but, uh, but there's still a fear, right? And that's how it works. Uh, I see this a lot with my kids. You turn the lights out, it becomes dark, and reality becomes a terrifying thing. But I think the number one reason why we don't see things the way they really are is because that the real truth of something just doesn't make sense to us. I mean, why do people still believe that the world is flat, right? They go, ah, you know, I don't really, I just don't really get it. I can't, I can't see, I mean, you can't see it curving, right? Uh, you know, nobody falls off of, uh, of, of the planet, so... Uh, it's not round. Um, it just looks flat. I've been on airplanes and I've seen it. Uh, I just think it doesn't make sense to me uh, that the world is round like they say it is. We could hear something a million times and if it just doesn't feel right to us or feel true to us, then we won't be able to face it. I say all this because last week we talked about suffering and about how the thing that we need in order to sort sort of navigate our way through suffering is wisdom. Uh, suffering's kind of like a fog. Wisdom is a lens that makes it possible to see through that fog. And a Christian is a person who has the potential to see clearer and clearer, to understand more and more about what's really going on. But according to James, in the passage that Matt just read, there's this temptation in suffering. And it's this, we're tempted when we're suffering to kind of believe and fall back on certain things that just aren't true. When life gets hard, when the pain comes, when the trials come, we begin to suffer, we can't see reality as it is. We see it as we, as we think it is. Uh, we're weak and we're tired, and so we think things, and we start to act differently because of them, but they aren't actually real. This is the other reason that we need wisdom. We need it so we can see reality when it's staring us in the face not look away to choose to believe something else. Uh, 
Facing reality takes the kind of wisdom that James talks about, wisdom to admit our inability to see things the way they are, wisdom to correct some of the distortions that we have, wisdom to accept the lot that God's given us in life, wisdom to even take responsibility for the way we act when we're suffering. James is writing about suffering so much to the church because they're going through a lot of persecution. Um, At the time, Christians, uh, Jewish people, Jewish Christians specifically, have been expelled from Rome uh, because Rome had this thing called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, and what it basically meant was that the authorities and rulers of Rome did whatever it takes to keep their society peaceful, even if it meant stepping on a group of people or uh, kicking out a group of people. And so it's the reason why Pilate was so eager to appease the Jewish people when they brought Jesus to them. He just did not want a revolt. He didn't want a rebellion. He didn't want some crazy uprising to make Rome a less peaceful place or else he'd get in trouble for it. So uh, because these Christians show up and there starts to be conflict between the Jewish people and them, uh, the Romans decide we're just going to kick all the Jewish people out of Rome, out of Jerusalem. And so they, uh, they, they kick them out of Jerusalem. And that's why, that's why James writes this letter, he says, to the, the Jews of the dispersion who are scattered out of Jerusalem. Um, so if you're a Christian Jewish person, then you now have no home. Uh, you've been kicked out of Jerusalem. You only have two groups of people that you can, basically that, you're, that are around you. One is the pagans, people whose whole lifestyle and way of living is built around worshiping idols and pagan rituals that Christians aren't allowed to be a part of. Uh, and so they can't relate to these people. All these people think they're weird because they don't do anything normal. It'd be kind of like not being able to celebrate any of the holidays that we have in America and still trying to be a part of the American culture. It just wouldn't work so well. So the pagans didn't like the Christian Jews. The Jewish people didn't like the Christian Jews because uh, they said, you're distorting our faith. You're the reason we got kicked out of Jerusalem in the first place. And so these Christians that James is writing to, because they've chosen to follow Jesus, have been persecuted tremendously. Their life is really hard and really painful, and suffering is a reality for them. And so James is talking to them about trials because to start any other way would be pretty unrealistic um, when it comes to life. And what he warns them about here is two things. One is the reality that, that when suffering comes, wealth and comfort, that money itself will not save you. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. He's saying that uh, when we suffer, our tendency is to think, if I just had more money, I would have more security and I would get through this better. Our first instinct is to assume money would fix this. It seems like having financial security would make suffering better, right? I mean, good insurance, money to distract you with fun. I mean, you know, a lot of people say that money doesn't buy happiness, but when you're suffering and going through a trial, I don't care what you say, having a jet ski would definitely help uh, with that trial. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the face of a person on a jet ski, but I think they would do a little bit better. At least for that day, they can... They can forget about the trials they're going through. So money does seem to make things a little better. I mean, do the wealthy really suffer like the poor? Uh, 
money that James is talking about, wealth, it's the substitute for any material thing that you'd put your security in. It's all the things that we accumulate, that we buy, that we save up, that we earn, so that we can be in control when maybe the bottom falls out from under us. But what James is saying is he's saying those who depend on human health and security will wither. He says they'll die like a flower. The, the house that we used to live in, we lived in California, had a big hill in the backyard. And this hill was huge and we didn't really do anything with it. Uh, it was just a bunch of dirt. And, uh, you know, the neighbors all along our street, everybody had this hill in their backyard. And some of them would put, you know, rocks on it. Some would put bark on it, you know, just to kind of not have to deal with it. We didn't even get to that. We were working on the inside of our house. And, and it looked pretty bad uh, most of the year. Well, uh, eventually, the first year we lived there, the rain came and uh, it, uh, it watered this hill, and it blossomed almost overnight, it seems, into this beautiful green hillside of like some of the most beautiful wildflowers that you've ever seen, and it was unbelievable. I mean, the whole back of our house, you look out of it, and you just see, most people have kind of a wall or a fence, you know, like in the back of their property. We just had this beautiful green hill that you could see, um, and so uh, my son, he would go out there, he'd sit on this retaining wall that we had, and he would, uh, he would look at this hill, and he would, uh, he would just stare at it all day. He would sit there, and he would look up at it, he would, he would find bugs, and it's where we found our first pet. It's a snake named Barry, Barry the snake, the king snake. Uh, uh, we, uh, don't worry, we, we threw him back. Could you stop it? Oh, man. Nancy's here. We can keep going. It's okay. Okay. All right. Sorry, podcast audience. Uh, <laughs> Nancy's taking off. She'll be back soon. Super plug. Yeah. I, th- I feel like maybe we might have just kind of broken the illusion there for a second. So, uh, so we're going to get back to our Sunday morning uh, fantasy here. So Tegan, Tegan, uh, he looked back at this field all day. I mean, he would, uh, was I talking about Barry the Snake? I was talking about Barry the Snake. Yeah, so we did, uh, we did return Barry the Snake to the wild because my kids were playing tug of war with him and I didn't think it was best for him to live with us. And I will say that he returned. He came back to our backyard and so we kept him. And um, so we, uh, we got a lot of benefit from this beautiful hill. But, uh, and for about, for like six weeks, basically, you would have looked at our backyard and thought, these people have done an amazing job of, you know, landscaping their backyard. They really know what they're doing. Well, then eventually, when the rain had stopped, everything died and uh, it turned into this huge hill of overgrown dead weeds. And it went from looking like this beautiful hillside to kind of an overgrown abandoned lot and went back to being this hill that we really needed to do something about. The, uh, the people that James is writing to at this time, uh, they lived in the Judean sort of countryside along the Mediterranean, and uh, when the rain came, what was normally this very arid, barren place became the most beautiful uh, landscape of just the brightest green and the most gorgeous flowers that you could imagine. And it looked that way for a little while until the rain went away because they didn't have landscaping, they didn't have irrigation at the time. And so all of the beautiful flowers, all the grasses, they only lasted for so long. They withered and they died every year, every time. And you would be a fool 
if you like built a house out in the countryside expecting it to always look that way, to always be that way. If you counted on those flowers and grasses to stay green forever, because everybody knew that they didn't, that they withered and they faded away. What James is saying is that for a person to have their hope and their security and their, and their, and their, their very uh, faith in wealth, even though it seems like that's the normal thing to do. He says, if your hope is in that, then you are going to wither away just as those things wither away because they won't last forever. He's not saying that it's better to be a poor person with nothing than to be a wealthy person. I mean, there are benefits to having money. Being poor isn't something that we should try to be necessarily. But Jesus talks about money and he calls it a God. He says you can only serve one master. You can either serve God or money. There's a reason he uses money in that illustration because money takes the place of God in our lives. It's the way that we take control that should otherwise belong to God. And so James is saying to the church, he's saying when you're going through a trial, when you're suffering, he says, don't make the mistake of thinking that wealth and the ability to actually achieve comfort is real security because it's not. That's not reality. Wealth is spoken of in the Bible like this very dangerous thing, this thing that you can do a lot with, but it also can cause a lot of damage. It's sort of like waking up in the morning and living out your whole day with a loaded gun in your hand, with your finger on the trigger saying, I know I'm not going to do anything bad. I don't intend to hurt anyone. I don't intend to make any foolish decisions today. Of course not. Why would I ever do that? But if for any reason you do, if you have a lapse in judgment, if you lose your temper or lose control, you, the person with the gun in your hand, can cause a lot more damage than the person who doesn't. This is the way that wealth works. It's spoken of in this way, not because it's evil, but because one day it's going to perish And the truth is, people with wealth tend to depend on it for life, for control. It replaces God in their life. So what James is saying is he's saying that's why the humble man is so exalted in trial. Because the humble man already has to depend on the fact that he doesn't have control over his circumstances. He is living in the real world. And wealthy people who haven't been humbled are living in a fake and a distorted world. These things are empty. So it's not wrong to be rich, but to be rich and to think that that's where your security is, is a fatal mistake. The rich man, he says, should instead glory in his abasement. I made the point in, in church that uh, it sounds like I'm saying there, the rich man should glory in his basement but that's not what I'm saying. And I will, I will admit, I know, I know some rich people who are very proud of their basements. They've spent a lot of time and money outfitting them. Uh, but that's not what, uh, what I'm saying here. I'm saying the truly wealthy person should glory in their humiliation. Uh, that they should actually see situations that humble them as valuable things. Trials are either going to relieve you of that encumbrance, or they're going to shock you into clarity. Instead, James says, the truly wealthy person is the one who's steadfast. This person will live like a king. 
they will have a crown of life. The rich seek after a status that will fade, but the steadfast will receive a crown that brings a status that we cannot even fully like, perceive. So when trials come, he says, you will be tempted to fall back on money, to think that this will make things better, but that's not reality. The Christians at this time were tempted to say, you know, as we've been kicked out of our home, as no one likes us, as people are persecuting us, we would at least have respect. We would at least have security. We would at least have comfort if God hadn't also allowed for us to be poor and impoverished. But James is saying to them, that's not true because all those things will waste away. You're going to have to learn to live on God alone, regardless. He says, remember, it's Christ who's your hope and your security. It's only God's truth and wisdom that can actually bring clarity to this life. So, so this is the, the first thing that James says. We'll take a little break here. Matt, how's, how are you? Good. Yeah? Good Matt's tracking along. The fact that he is sitting in the front row with a Bible taking, taking notes. It's my third time and I'm still getting It's his phone. third time and he's still getting new insights <laughs> out of this message. That says something, everybody. That says that, that, that you don't have to pick first or second service. <laughs> that you can go to both, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. That's true. I wish our wives believed that because they don't seem to get... They don't seem to take long notes. Um, so the, the next thing, getting back, the next thing that James says is he says that, the, first he said the temptation is to think that money is going to fix things, and it's not. We know what this is like. We have, we have felt this temptation before in trials. In fact, a lot of the anxiety that I've felt in my own life has been anxiety of what happens when things go wrong. Do I have enough saved? Do I have a way of knowing that everything will be okay. And honestly, there is no way of knowing that perfectly. So, uh, so James says, that's the first danger. The second danger, he says, is that we, 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 we will make the mistake of thinking that the way we act is not our responsibility. That when life gets hard and trials come, our actions that we're not actually responsible for them, especially when we mess up. He says, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. And then he explains, he goes on to explain how we are tempted. You see, trials don't actually give you an excuse to sin. I mean, this is so common, right? Uh, when, when life gets hard and suffering comes, it seems like one of the only things we, we do get to take comfort in when life gets hard is that we get to let our guard down a little bit. We get to slack off a little bit. We get to compromise a little bit because life is hard, right? Everybody needs a way to cope. And James is saying, well, when that happens, it's not happening because God did that in your life. It's happening because you've chosen to live this way. I mean, in the same way that an alcoholic has to decide that they're not gonna take a drink on a good day to celebrate it, and they're not gonna take a drink on a bad day to take the edge off when they have a hard, hard day at work, uh, either way, it's sin and it's going to destroy their life. I mean, how many of us respond to suffering this way, right? By coping with things that are selfish, destructive. Uh, there's this saying in our, in our world today, sorry, not sorry. And uh, I, I love it. It's so great. It's the idea that you, you can apologize to things without actually being sorry 
about them. Uh, Matt, you do, you do this a lot, don't you? It's actually one of Hannah's favorite sayings. Really? That's one of your wife's favorite yeah. sayings? Yeah. Because you, because because of what, because you or just? No, I mean, she says it to me. Oh, she says it to yeah. you. Yeah. So, sorry, not sorry. so Matt's wife, she, she, she says this a lot. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's probably something it sounds like that she needs to work on. Um, I learned about five years into marriage that uh, I was really, really good at giving very like eloquent, articulate, thoughtful, insightful like um, apologies to Ellie after a fight. I, I would just, I mean, it, it was a thing to behold. And I would just really, you know, and I could tell she was sitting there when I would apologize and you know, she's going, oh my, man, he really, yeah, he was listening. He really got it. He gets me. He's, he's, man, he's, this guy, he's, this guy, he's a real catch, you know, but I then would follow it up with this one little word that kind of ruined everything, and it was the word, but. I'd say, you know, I'm sorry about this. I know that, but, you know, if only, you just knew if you if only you just could not do this anymore you know or uh, you know it's, when you do this obviously i feel this way or you know but you can understand how i would do that because you are always doing this and then she'd go okay this isn't really an apology this is just a very 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 long introduction to him telling me why I need to apologize to him so uh and that is sadly the truth of Apologies, right? You're either sorry or you're not. You're either recognizing that you're wrong and that it's your fault that something happened or you're not. And there isn't really a halfway in between. And sadly, I mean, I hate, I hate it when people, when people say to me, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel that way, you know, or, wow, I'm really sorry that, uh, that, 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 that made you, uh, that that came across that way. That made you feel, I'm like, come on, you're not really sorry, right? Uh, that doesn't count. Uh, you know, we, we, we mess up when we're in trials, when we're suffering, and uh, the fact is that it's our fault when we do that. It's not God's fault. It's not the situation's fault. It's not someone else's fault. Uh, God is always going to give you a way of not being overwhelmed by things. You have to choose that way. You have to choose that path out of the trial. And I mean, this is a really hard thing for us to wrap our mind around because uh, really much of the time that we deal with trials in our lives, we, we immediately, like right out of, the, out of the gate, say, you know, I just, I'm overwhelmed by this, right? I don't think that, I think it's too much for me to handle. And, and what's the thing about being overwhelmed, right? When you're overwhelmed, then you're not really responsible for your actions. You can't be expected to handle it and deal with it. You can't be expected to just kind of roll with it because it's just too much, right? Uh, I mean, could you imagine if when life got difficult, instead of being overwhelmed, we actually said, I know that God will give me a way out of this without being defeated by it, without being overwhelmed by it. I mean, do we believe that that's true? That no matter what we're facing, that God will allow, God, God allows for us to not be overwhelmed by that thing, that it's not going to have to defeat us. I was I was talking to a friend this last week who, you know, uh, you know, they're raising kids and they both have to work because of the sort of financial obligations that they have. And, you know, in talking about the, the frustration and the pain of wanting to be there to raise their kids, but also 
having to work to earn money to support their kids, they just feel like it's an impossible situation. Like there's no way out of it. Like there's no way to do the thing that we feel like we need to do. And I, and I, I sympathize with that because you, we get in these situations. I mean, it's the reason people don't want to sit down and do their budgets sometimes. It's the reason why taxes are a really depressing time for a lot of us because what it means is sitting down to the reality that we'd never want to face because we are overwhelmed when we think, I don't have enough to pay the bills. I don't have enough to make it uh, the way I need to. Uh, we get overwhelmed and defeated so easily by things. And what James is reminding the church is he's saying, he's saying you don't need to feel that way because God will give you a way out. But when you do that, you begin to compromise. You begin to let your guard down. You begin to sin. And what you have to see is that your response to these circumstances is your responsibility, not God's or someone else's. A lot of times we make the mistake of thinking that maybe suffering and trials, they make up for some kind of sin in your life. Like if things are hard, then you know, uh, maybe the fact that I'm, 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 maybe I'm holier because of that, or I'm doing, I'm working harder, trying harder, and so that means that I get to mess up a little bit as well. I mean, I, I sadly know so many pastors and people in ministry who have done some terrible things, who have, who have had affairs, who have stolen money, who have lied, and, and, and their justification for that was, you know, the work that I was doing for God was really hard, but it was really important. And, and I just thought that God was willing to overlook my sin because I was, uh, I was doing what he wanted. I was doing his will. What James says is he says, it's your fault that you do those things. He says that you essentially are baiting your own hook. He says you're lured by your own desire. You know what you desire, right? I mean, this is like somebody's sitting on a dock and they're fishing and fish jumps out of the water and uh, says, hey, uh, you know, I, I just got to tell you, you know, I, I'm not really, I really am not down with the whole worm thing or any of that stuff. I mean, I, as strange as it sounds, I'm, I'm like actually kind of more of a goldfish cracker guy. So if you threw a couple goldfish crackers on the hook, I would, I would eat that right up, okay? Anyway, just letting you know. And then you jump back in the water and go, yeah, I'm a nice guy. And then, oh, look, there's some goldfish and you eat them and no, why God, why, right? That is, that is what we do. We, we, we know what we are weak for and what we desire. And we bait the hook. And then we are caught by it when we're tempted and we say, oh, it's God's fault, right? It's not God's fault, says James, it's yours. And he says, you start this process that you can't go back from much of the time. He kind of describes it like this little sin baby, uh, and, and, and this is what it's like, right? I mean, people don't get pregnant and say, hey, uh, we're pregnant, we're having a baby. And then you go, oh, well, I mean, maybe. Let's, let's wait and see what it turns into, right? Let's, let's see uh, how this, literally how this develops. You know, I mean, we've wanted a pet for a while. Maybe it'll be a kitten or something. We'll just see. I mean, it's a human baby now, but who knows, right? No, that's not what happens. Human babies are born into human people and they grow. And he's saying, this is what your sin does. He's like, don't, don't, allow your desire to be there uh, thinking it won't turn into temptation because it will. And, and don't think that the temptation isn't going to turn into sin because it will. And don't think that sin is okay because everyone does it and it won't lead to death because it will. He says it's going to keep growing. It's going to keep developing. And when it does, it's because you started that process to begin with. So all the things that we do, all the things that we, you know, kind of give into 
to cope with the pain that we're going through. The, the lust, the shopping, the gluttony, the greed, all the anger, all the bitterness towards God and others, all the self-pity. You know, I mean, is feeling sorry for yourself a sin? Man, if that's a sin, that is like, I've got, I've got a lot to think about, right? I mean, these are the things that we, that we do so often in trials. And James is saying, please, church, don't make the mistake of, of blaming God when you sin because of the trials. Know that you don't have to do that, that you won't be defeated by these things, and that God's not the one that's tempting you, that you're tempting yourself. Matt, you do a lot of bad things when you're tempted, huh? When you're, when you're suffering, I should say. I justify it pretty easily. Yeah. Matt's a road rager. So he's, uh, he, he gets in the car and just puts his foot on the gas. And uh, remember that time you jumped the Canby Ferry? You were so mad. You didn't want to wait for the ferry. I just heard one time that you don't swerve. You don't swerve, right? Yeah, yeah, you don't swerve. That's what his dad taught him. No, <laughs> you know, the, fa- the, the little fairy gate, it, it, he said, <laughs> you know, it, looks, it looked like a ramp. It looked like a ramp because it was going up and it wasn't up yet. And so he took it and he, uh, yeah, he did not make it across, uh, across the river that day. Um, you know, the, um, what, what James is saying ultimately is he's saying the mark of a mature Christian is not that you are so financially secure, that you've saved up so much money that you uh, aren't gonna really suffer and it's not gonna devastate you when you do. Um, You know, true wisdom isn't that you have worked hard enough and you've made thorough enough plans that you have an emergency fund that's gonna get you through anything that happens. True wisdom is recognizing that those material things aren't what's going to save you. I mean, how many of us when we worry, when we're afraid, solve that problem by making more plans, right? By saving more, by sacrificing more just in case, as if those are the things that ultimately care for us. When in reality, says James, that uh, the mature Christian is the one that recognizes that these things are not what their hope is in. So if you don't have money, if you are poor, says James, then take pride in your exalted position because you have nowhere to go but up. And the wealthy person should be grateful for this trial that is reminding them because trials are the great equalizer, right? They come to all of us equally. Be grateful for the fact that this is reminding you of how humble your situation is, that even though you have all this wealth and you have all this stuff and you have all this security in the world, loves it and is impressed by it, that those things don't matter in the kingdom at all. And that because of that, you are humbled. A mature Christian is somebody who, when things get difficult and painful, we don't act any differently. We don't live any differently. We continue to have integrity. And we say, rather than use this as an excuse to sin and to cope, I am going to, through this trial, pass the test and receive the crown of life. Well, that's it. 35 minutes? 35 minutes. 
That's definitely the shortest message even with Nancy. that I've given. Even with Nancy's, you know, uh, intermission. Man, well, uh, I, some time. <laughs> yeah, man, I've got some time. You know, boy, there are a lot of things that I've wanted to say that I haven't had time to say on a Sunday morning. A lot of opinions that I want to share. People think, just because I, f- I post jokes on the internet, that I'm not an opinionated guy. I should have you like, start a political rant, and then I'll just cut you off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you a lot of people want to know, who should I vote for in this next election? And I will tell you right now, I will tell you, if you stick around, that the person that God wants to lead this country is, 